The Truth, the Whole Truth, and Nothing But the Truth by Rhoda Broughton. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Anne Erickson, Toronto. The Truth, the Whole Truth, and Nothing But the Truth by Rhoda Broughton. Mrs. DeWint to Mrs. Montresor. 18 Eccleston Square, May 5th. My dearest Cecilia, talk the friendships of Orestes and Pilates, of Julie and Claire, what are they to ours? Did Pilates ever go ventre à terre, half over London on a day more broiling than any but an âme damnée could even imagine, in order that Orestes might be comfortably housed for the season? Did Claire ever hold sweet converse with from fifty to one hundred house agents in order that Julie might have three windows to her drawing-room and a pretty portiere? You see, I am determined not to be done out of my full need of gratitude. Well, my friend, I had no idea till yesterday how closely we were packed in this great smoky beehive, as tightly as herrings in a barrel. Don't be frightened, however. By dint of squeezing and crowding, we have managed to make room for two more herrings in our barrel, and those two are yourself and your other self, i.e. your husband. Let me begin at the beginning. After having looked over, I verily believe, every undesirable residence in West London, after having seen nothing intermediate between what was suited to the means of a duke and what was suited to the needs of a chimney-sweep, after having felt bed-ticking and explored kitchen ranges till my brain reeled under my accumulated experience, I arrived at about half-past five yesterday afternoon at 32 Blank Street, Mayfair. Failure number 253, I don't doubt, I said to myself as I toiled up the steps with my soul athirst for afternoon tea and feeling as ill-tempered as you please. So much for my spirit of prophecy. Fate, I have noticed, is often fond of contradicting us flat and giving the lie to our little predictions. Once inside, I thought I had got into a small compartment of heaven by mistake. Fresh as a daisy, clean as a cherry, bright as a seraph's face, it is all these and a hundred more, only that my limited stock of similes is exhausted. Two drawing-rooms as pretty as ever woman crammed with people she did not care two straws about, white curtains with rose-colored ones underneath, festooned in the sweetest way, marvelously, immorally becoming, my dear, as I ascertained entirely for your benefit in the mirrors, of which there are about a dozen and a half. Persian mats, easy chairs, and lounges suited to every possible physical confirmation, from the Apollo Belvedere to Miss Biffin, and a thousand of the important little trivialities that make up the sum of a woman's life. Ormolu garden gates, handleless cups, naked boys and décolleté shepherdesses, not to speak of a family of china pugs with blue ribbons around their necks, which ought of themselves to have added fifty pounds a year to the rent. Apropos, I asked in fear and trembling, what the rent might be. Three hundred pounds a year. A feather would have knocked me down, I could hardly believe my ears, and made the woman repeat it several times, that there might be no mistake. To this hour it is a mystery to me. 
With that suspiciousness, which is so characteristic of you, you will immediately begin to hint that there must be some terrible, unaccountable smell or some odious, inexplicable noise haunting the reception rooms. Nothing of the kind, the woman assured me, and she did not look as if she were telling stories. You will next suggest, remembering the rose-colored curtains, that its last occupant was a member of the demi-monde. Wrong again. Its last occupant was an elderly and unexceptionable Indian officer, without a liver and with a most lawful wife. They did not stay long, it is true, but then, as the housekeeper told me, he was a deplorable old hypochondriac who never could bear to stay a fortnight in any one place. So lay aside that skepticism, which is your besetting sin, and give unfeigned thanks to St. Brigitta, or St. Gwengolfa, or St. Catherine of Siena, or whoever is your tutelar saint, for having provided you with a palace at the cost of a hovel, and for having sent you such an invaluable friend as your attached Elizabeth de Wint. P.S. I am so sorry I shall not be in town to witness your first raptures, but my dear Artie looks so pale and thin and tall after the whooping cough, that I am sending him off at once to the sea, and as I cannot bear the child out of my sight, I am going into banishment likewise. Mrs. Montresor to Mrs. De Wint, 32 Blank Street, Mayfair, May 14th. Dearest Bessie, why did not dear little Artie defer his whooping cough, convalescence, etc., till August? It is very odd to me the perverse way in which children always fix upon the most inconvenient times and seasons for their diseases. Here we are installed in our paradise, and have searched high and low, in every hole and corner, for the serpent, without succeeding in catching a glimpse of his spotted tail. Most things in this world are disappointing, but 32 Blank Street, Mayfair, is not. The mystery of the rent is still a mystery. I have been from my first ride in the row this morning. My horse was a little fidgety. I am half afraid that my nerve is not what it was. I saw heaps of people I knew. Do you recollect Florence Watson? What a wealth of red hair she had last year. Well, that same wealth is black as the raven's wings this year. I wonder how people can make such walking impositions of themselves, don't you? Adela comes to us next week. I am so glad. It is dull driving by oneself of an afternoon, and I always think that one young woman alone in a brougham, or with only a dog beside her, does not look good. We sent round our cards a fortnight before we came up, and have been already deluged with callers. Considering that we have been two years exiled from civilized life, and that London memories are not generally of the longest, we shall do pretty well, I think. Ralph Gordon came to see me on Sunday, he is in the blank Hussars now. He has grown up such a dear fellow and so good-looking. Just my style, large and fair and whiskerless. Most men nowadays make themselves as like monkeys or Scotch terriers as they possibly can. I intend to be quite a mother to him. Dresses are gored to as indecent an extent as ever. Short skirts are rampant. I am so sorry. I hate them. They make tall women look lank and short ones insignificant. A knock. Peace is a word that might as well be expunged from one's London dictionary. Yours affectionately, Cecilia Montresor. Mrs. DeWint to Mrs. Montresor. The Lord Warden, 
Dover, May 18th. Dearest Cecilia, you will perceive that I am about to devote only one small sheet of notepaper to you. This is from no dearth of time, heaven knows. Time is a drug in the market here, but from a total dearth of ideas. Any ideas that I ever have come to me from without, from external objects. I am not clever enough to generate any within. My life here is not an eminently suggestive one. It is spent in digging with a wooden spade and eating prawns. Those are my employments, at least. My relaxation is going down to the pier to see the Calais boat come in. When one is miserable oneself, it is decidedly consolatory to see someone more miserable still. And wretched and bored and reluctant vegetable as I am, I am not seasick. I always feel my spirits rise after having seen that peevish, draggled procession of blue, green, and yellow fellow Christians file past me. There is a wind here, always, in comparison of which the wind that behaved so violently to the corners of Job's house was a mere zephyr. There are heights to climb which require more daring perseverance than ever Wolf displayed with his paltry heights of Abraham. There are glaring white houses, glaring white roads, glaring white cliffs. If anyone knew how unpatriotically I detest the chalk cliffs of Albion. Having grumbled through my two little pages, I've actually been reduced to writing very large in order to fill even them. I will send off my dreary little B.A. How I wish I could get into the envelope myself, too, and whirl up with it to dear, beautiful, filthy London. Not more heavily could Madame de Stael have sighed for Paris from among the shades of Coppet. Your disconsolate Bessie. Mrs. Montresor to Mrs. De Wint. 32 Blank Street, Mayfair, May 27th. Oh, my dearest Bessie, how I wish we were out of this dreadful, dreadful house. Please don't think me very ungrateful for saying this, after your taking such pains to provide us with a heaven on earth, as you thought. What has happened could, of course, have been neither foretold nor guarded against by any human being. About ten days ago, Benson, my maid, came to me with a very long face and said, if you please, and did you know that this house was haunted? I was so startled. You know what a coward I am. I said, good heavens, no. Is it? Well, um, I'm pretty nigh sure it is, she said. And the expression of her countenance was about as lively as an undertaker's. And then she told me that Cook had been that morning to order in groceries from a shop in the neighborhood, and on her giving the man the direction where to send things to, he had said with a very peculiar smile, No, 32 Blank Street, eh? Hmm. I wonder how long you'll stand it. Last law it held out just a fortnight. He looked so odd that she asked him what he meant, but he only said, Oh, nothing, only that parties never did stay long at 32. He had known parties go in one day and out the next, and during the last four years he had never known any remain over the month. Feeling a good deal alarmed by this information, she naturally inquired the reason, but he declined to give it, saying that if she had not found it out for herself, she had much better leave it alone, as it would only frighten her out of her wits, and on her insisting and urging him, she could only extract from him that the house had such a villainously bad name that the owners were glad to let it for a mere song. 
You know how firmly I believe in apparitions and what an unutterable fear I have of them. Anything material, tangible that I can lay hold of, anything of the same fibre, blood, and bone as myself, I could, I think, confront bravely enough. But the mere thought of being brought face to face with the bodiless dead makes my brain unsteady. The moment Henry came in, I ran to him and told him, but he pooh-poohed the whole story, laughed at me, and asked whether we should turn out of the prettiest house in London at the very height of the season because a grocer said it had a bad name. Most good things that had ever been in the world had had a bad name in their day, and moreover, the man had probably a motive for taking away the house's character, some friend for whom he coveted the charming situation and the low rent. He derided my babyish fears, as he called them, to such an extent that I felt half ashamed, and yet not quite comfortable either. And then came the usual rush of London engagements, during which one has no time to think of anything but how to speak and act and look for the moment then present. Adela was to arrive yesterday, and in the morning our weekly hamper of flowers, fruit, and vegetables arrived from home. I always dress the flower vases myself. Servants are so tasteless. And as I was arranging them, it occurred to me, you know Adela's passion for flowers, to carry up one particular cornucopia of roses and mignonette and set it on her toilet table as a pleasant surprise for her. As I came downstairs, I had seen the housemaid, a fresh, round-faced country girl, go into the room which was being prepared for Adela with a pair of sheets that she had been airing over her arm. I went upstairs very slowly, as my cornucopia was full of water, and I was afraid of spilling some. I turned the handle of the bedroom door and entered, keeping my eyes fixed on my flowers to see how they bore the transit, and whether any of them had fallen out. Suddenly a sort of shiver passed over me, and feeling frightened, I did not know why, I looked up quickly. The girl was standing by the bed leaning forward a little with her hands clenched in each other, rigid, every nerve tense, her eyes wide open, starting out of her head, and a look of unutterable stony horror in them, her cheeks and mouth not pale, but livid as those of one that died a while ago in mortal pain. As I looked at her, her lips moved a little, and an awful hoarse voice, not like hers in the least, said, Oh, my God, I have seen it! And then she fell down suddenly like a log with a heavy noise. Hearing the noise, loudly audible all through the thin walls and floors of a London house, Benson came running in, and between us we managed to lift her on to the bed and tried to bring her to herself by rubbing her feet and hands and holding strong salts to her nostrils. And all the while we kept glancing over our shoulders in a vague, cold terror of seeing some awful shapeless apparition. Two long hours she lay in a state of utter unconsciousness. Meanwhile, Harry, who had been down to his club, returned. At the end of the two hours, we succeeded in bringing her back to sensation and life, but only to make the awful discovery that she was raving mad. She became so violent that it required all the combined strength of Harry and Phillips, our butler, to hold her down in the bed. Of course, we sent off instantly for a doctor, who, on her growing a little calmer towards evening, removed her in a cab to his own house. He has just been here to tell us that she is now pretty quiet, 
not from any return to sanity, but from sheer exhaustion. We are, of course, utterly in the dark as to what she saw, and her ravings are far too disconnected and unintelligible to afford us the slightest clue. I feel so completely shattered and upset by this awful occurrence that you will excuse me, my dear, I'm sure, if I write incoherently. One thing I need hardly tell you, and that is that no earthly consideration would deduce me to allow Adela to occupy that terrible room. I shudder and run by quickly as I pass the door. Yours in great agitation, Cecilia. Mrs. DeWint to Mrs. Montresor. The Lord Warden, Dover, May 28th. Dearest Cecilia, yours has just come. How very dreadful! But I am still unconvinced as to the house being in fault. You know I feel a sort of godmother to it, and responsible for its good behavior. Don't you think that what the girl had might have been a fit? Why not? I myself have a cousin who is subject to seizures of the kind. And immediately on being attacked, his whole body becomes rigid, his eyes glassy and staring, his complexion livid, exactly as in the case you describe. Or, if not a fit, are you sure that she has not been subject to fits of madness? Please be sure and ascertain whether there is not insanity in her family. It is so common nowadays, and so much on the increase, that nothing is more likely. You know my utter disbelief in ghosts. I am convinced that most of them, if run to earth, would turn out about as genuine as the famed Cock Lane one. But even allowing the possibility, nay, the actual unquestioned existence of ghosts in the abstract, is it likely that there should be anything to be seen so horribly fear-inspiring as to send a perfectly sane person in one instant raving mad, which you, after three weeks' residence in the house, have never caught a glimpse of? According to your hypothesis, your whole household ought by this time to be stark, staring mad. Let me implore you not to give way to a panic, which may possibly, probably, prove utterly groundless. Oh, how I wish I were with you to make you listen to reason. Artie ought to be the best prop ever woman's old age was furnished with, to indemnify me for all he and his whooping cough have made me suffer. Write immediately, please, and tell me how the poor patient progresses. Oh, had I the wings of a dove. I shall be on wires till I hear again. Yours, Bessie. Mrs. Montresor to Mrs. DeWint. Number 5, Bolton Street, Piccadilly, June 12. Dearest Bessie, you will see that we have left that terrible, hateful, fatal house. How I wish we had escaped from it sooner. Oh, my dear Bessie, I shall never be the same woman again if I live to be a hundred. Let me try to be coherent and to tell you connectedly what has happened. And first, as to the housemaid, she has been removed to a lunatic asylum, where she remains in much the same state. She has had several lucid intervals, and during them has been closely, pressingly questioned as to what it was she saw. But she has maintained an absolute, hopeless silence and only shudders, moans, and hides her face in her hands when the subject is broached. Three days ago I went to see her, and on my return was sitting resting in the drawing-room before going to dress for dinner, 
talking to Adela about my visit when Ralph Gordon walked in. He has always been walking in the last ten days, and Adela has always flushed up and looked happy, poor little cat, whenever he made his appearance. He looked very handsome, dear fellow, just come in from the park in a coat that fitted like a second skin, lavender gloves, and a gardenia. He seemed in tremendous spirits and was as sceptical as even you could be as to the ghostly origin of Sarah's seizure. Let me come here tonight and sleep in that room. Do, Mrs. Montresor, he said, looking very eager and excited. With the gas lit and a poker, I'll engage to exercise every demon that shows his ugly nose, even if I should find seven white ghostesses sitting on seven white postesses. You don't mean really, I asked incredulously. Don't I? That's all, he answered emphatically. I should like nothing better. Well, is it a bargain? Adela turned quite pale. Oh, don't, she said hurriedly. Please don't. Why should you run such a risk? How do you know that you might not be sent mad too? He laughed very heartily and colored a little with pleasure at seeing the interest she took in his safety. Never fear, he said. It would take more than a whole squadron of departed ones with the old gentleman at their head to send me crazy. He was so eager, so persistent, so thoroughly in earnest that I yielded at last, though with a certain strong reluctance to his entreaties. Adela's blue eyes filled with tears and she walked away hastily to the conservatory and stood picking bits of heliotrope to hide them. Nevertheless, Ralph got his own way. It was so difficult to refuse him anything. We gave up all our engagements for the evening, and he did the same with his. At about ten o'clock he arrived, accompanied by a friend and brother officer, Captain Burton, who was anxious to see the result of the experiment. Let me go up at once, he said, looking very happy and animated. I don't know when I have felt in such good tune. A new sensation is a luxury not to be had every day of one's life. Turn the gas up as high as it will go, provide a good stout poker, and leave the issue to Providence and me. We did as he bid. It's all ready now, Henry said, coming downstairs after having obeyed his orders. The room is nearly as light as day. Well, good luck to you, old fellow. Goodbye, Miss Bruce, Ralph said, going over to Adela and taking her hand with a look, half laughing, half sentimental. Fare thee well, and if forever, then forever fare thee well. That is my last dying speech and confession. Now mind, he went on, standing by the table, addressing us all, if I ring once, don't come. I may be flurried and lay hold of the bell without thinking. If I ring twice, come. Then he went, jumping up the stairs three steps at a time and humming a tune. As for us, we sat in different attitudes of expectation and listening about the drawing-room. At first we tried to talk a little, but it would not do. Our whole soul seemed to have passed into our ears. The clock's ticking sounded as loud as a great church bell close to one's ear. Addie lay on the sofa with her dear little white face hidden in the cushions. So we sat for exactly an hour. But it seemed like two years, and just as the clock began to strike eleven, a sharp ting, ting, ting ran clear and shrill through the house. Let us go, said Addie, starting up and running to the door. Let us go, I cried too, following her. 
but Captain Burton stood in the way and intercepted our progress. No, he said decisively, you must not go. Remember, Gordon told us distinctly, if he rang once, not to come. I know the sort of fellow he is, and that nothing would annoy him more than having his directions disregarded. Oh, nonsense, Addie cried passionately. He would never have rung if he had not seen something dreadful. Do, do let us go, she ended, clasping her hands. But she was overruled, and we all went back to our seats. Ten minutes more of suspense, next door to unendurable. I felt a lump in my throat, a gasping for breath. Ten minutes on the clock, but a thousand centuries on our hearts. Then again, loud, sudden, violent, the bell rang. We made a simultaneous dash to the door. I don't think we were one second flying upstairs. Addie was first. Almost simultaneously, she and I burst into the room. There he was, standing in the middle of the floor, rigid, petrified, with that same look, that look that is burnt into my heart in letters of fire, of awful, unspeakable, stony fear on his brave young face. For one instant he stood thus, then stretching out his arms stiffly before him, he groaned in a terrible, husky voice, Oh, my God, I have seen it and fell down, dead, yes, dead, not in a swoon or in a fit, but dead. Vainly we tried to bring back the life in that strong young heart. It will never come back again till that day when the earth and the sea give up the dead that are therein. I cannot see the page for the tears that are blinding me. He was such a dear fellow. I cannot write any more today. Your broken-hearted Cecilia. This is a true story. End of the Truth, the Whole Truth, and Nothing but the Truth by Rhoda Broughton. Recording by Anne Erickson, Toronto.